Good to be back with you. Before I begin my lesson, I simply want to say that I know that as I go through this, some of you will disagree with what I say. And that's acceptable. Because I'm not without flaw. But let us all be careful that we don't disagree with the Lord. Disagreeing with me or any of the speakers this week, if we misspeak, is not only acceptable, it's appropriate. But let's not disagree with the Lord. Is the church still pure? The book that many of you are holding on your lap is a very colorful book. And that phrase can be used in terms of its activities, but it literally has many colors in it. The color red is found 53 times in the Bible, black many times, white 74 times. The color white is the color that's used most frequently in the Bible. You might call it the Bible's favorite color. It has nothing to do with race or nationality. It has to do with purity. And it's often associated with the raiment of God's people. Ecclesiastes 9 and 8, let your garments always be white. The angels at the Lord's grave appeared white. At the ascension, they appeared white. Often, white raiment is contrasted with moth-eaten garments of the rich. James 5 and 2. Revelations 3 and 4, we have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Revelations 3.18, clothed in white raiment. Revelation 6.11, white robes in heaven. Revelation 7 and 4, robes made white by the blood of the Lamb. One of the great ironies, how God can take red blood and take black spots and make robes white. Christ is on a white horse in Revelations 19.11. Army, armies of heaven are clothed in fine linen and white and clean in Revelations 19 and 14. And on and on it goes. White is ascribed to the purity that God wants his people. Several decades ago, my attention, my attention was focused on a book written in 1959. And I remember only one phrase from that book that struck me then and has stuck with me since. The author said, Christianity is the, is supremely the champion of purity. To be a champion means to be a militant advocate, a defender, a leader of, a fighter for. And that is the responsibility of every single one of us who are members of the Lord's body. Yes, the elders have a lead role, and Wade did a superb job, I thought, of articulating many of those points. But in Matthew 18, when it finally comes to it, they take the Erring one 
to the church, not simply to the elders. Purity is to be a mark or the mark of the church. Our question for a few moments this afternoon is, is that still true? Well, theoretically it's true because the church to be the church has to be pure. But is the church as we know it pure? It's when the theoretical meets reality that our faith is truly tested. Sadly, we live in an age where the church is viewed more or less as a smorgasbord. There are all kinds and types of churches providing consumers multiple options from which to pick and choose what they like. And because of that, sound doctrine often gives way to preferred doctrine, which often is not pure doctrine. Yet the whole purpose of doctrine is to direct our lives toward purity. Unless it does, it's useless to us. The power of Christ to make us pure is great. It's unquestionable, but it's not automatic. And the purity of our lives determines the purity of the church because we are the church. Dr. Peter Jorkin, a Russian-born Harvard sociologist in 1961 in a book entitled The American Sex Revolution, wrote, and I quote, There is a growing preoccupation with our writers with the social sewer, broken homes of disloyal parents, the bedroom of prostitutes, a Cannery Row brothel, a den of criminals, street combers, a gang of delinquents, hate-laden prisons, the courtroom of dishonest judges, the sex adventures of urbanized cavemen. I really like that phrase. I don't like the thought, but I like that phrase. The loves of adulterers and fornicators, masochists, sadists, and mistresses. All of these, he said, are seductively prepared and served with all the trimmings. End quote. And I've largely described a, hard, a large portion of our literary industry and our entertainment industry with those words. When you compare that with the rage that a four-letter word caused when slipped into the 1939 epic film Gone with the Wind, you see how far we've come. Maybe I should say how far we've fallen. There would be no rage today from that four-letter word in 1939. There wouldn't even be a raised eyebrow, even amongst many of us. Today, the eye gate is flooded with an endless stream of suggestions and stimuli from the sewers of our morality, or maybe I should say from the sewers of our immorality. Pornography is on the move, from mail order to street corners to hotel rooms and now our living rooms. Who here, when designing a house, would put their bathroom right in the middle of the living room? And yet we place a sewer, oftentimes right there. The acceptance of sin is so rampant that it has removed the blush. America is no longer pure, if it ever was. And I don't see that changing, and I don't see us changing it. We can change souls one at a time. But probably not our entire society. 
But there still is to be an island of refuge where purity rules. And that is to be the church. If purity can't rule in the church, then purity is lost. The church should lead the way along with our hearts and along with our homes. But does it? Is the church, and I'll be more specific, is your congregation an island of purity? I believe it's one of the greater challenges we have to face. And one that we dare not lose. But the walls can easily crumble. In fact, they are crumbling in many places. One of the reasons I requested this topic, because over the last year, year and a half, I have heard repeated words from even church leaders not denominational leaders, church leaders in our fellowship. To the effect, and I quote, I'm done with church discipline. I thought we'd moved on from church discipline. Those two quotes happened to come from church officers who had families that, in my opinion, needed some discipline. I had breakfast with two elders, and they asked me, we have some unmarried members living together. Do you think we should do something about it? We discussed that. You know my answer. Nothing has changed. It's not been addressed. I know we should but I don't want to lose them. A couple of decades ago, I sat down with two elders who had never written a letter of admonishment to a a member in their entire realm as elders. I found myself sitting there trying to help them write a letter trying to pull somebody back. In all due respect, they were clueless. When congregational discipline and therefore purity is abandoned, the end is inevitable. I don't believe this is the only reason we see congregations dying today, but I think it is a leading contributor and a symptomatic indicator. Wade gave us some thoughts about the Challenges of elders. Oftentimes, new elders are left with a mess. Trying to undo what has not been done over the years that desperately needed to be done. When sin is overlooked, tolerated, and swept under the rug, how can the Lord's blessings continue? And I fear they don't. UCLA sociologist James Wilson has observed an interesting fact about inner city life. He wasn't writing about the church. He was just observing inner city life. And I quote, The crime rate increases on those streets where the broken windows are not repaired. 
failed to repair broken windows make an announcement to the public that the standards have been lowered and authority abandoned, end quote. Wilson noted such practices of prolonged disrepair serves as an invitation for further crime without the threat of further consequences. I believe what is true of the streets is also true of the church. When sin goes unchecked, destruction is invited in, both in the Lord's church and in specific lives. Brothers and sisters, sometimes it's the lack of confronting a problem that causes problems to arise. John mentioned mold. We get mold in the home. Any rational person would address that. We get gangrene in the body. Who's going to set and just let it spread? In fact, we'd consider it foolish not to deal with such things. When we exercise the discipline needed to stop, change, repair damaging behavior, we erect a fence. We draw a line that will discourage further erosion. But brothers and sisters, we don't even have to draw the line because God's already drawn it. We just have to have the courage and the love to apply it. When the children of Israel entered the Canaan land, they set up landmarks to show where the tribe's land would be, where the family's lands would be. And I think that was real, but I also think it is metaphoric for the landmarks spiritually that God sets up for his people. And I don't know of a single landmark that man has, that God has established morally, spiritually, that man has not tried to move. Christ and the apostles took church purity seriously. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, Jesus says, And if he, the sinful one, refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That's an expression not simply bringing it to the church, but if the person does not respond, there is a change in the relationship. From a brother or a sister to a heathen or a tax collector, which in those days was about the bottom of the barrel. Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 6, 7, and 8, which has been touched on, but I want to comment on it in a slightly different way, says, Your glorying is not good. The congregation at Corinth, it was not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for you. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and of wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. By analogy, all is telling us, sin in the church, when it is not dealt with, will silently spread its destructive consequences throughout the whole fellowship. Not a new principle in the Bible. 
Solomon writing in Ecclesiastes 8 and 11 says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And I don't think we're being taught there to have be rash and hasty, but I do think we're being taught to be diligent in protecting the purity of the church. The sense there is plain. Sin indulged in or allowed in the church works like leaven. It will pervade and corrupt the whole assembly unless dealt with. And on that ground and for that reason, discipline should be administers at times. And corruption should either be purified or removed, but not ignored. Twice Paul uses very harsh language. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, about this immoral man, he says, Deliver such a one unto Satan. That's heavy duty stuff. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now listen to the reason. That his spirit may be saved. Let me comment on that before I move to the second time Paul uses the phrase. In 1 Corinthians 5, when he's dealing with this immoral man, or immoral conduct within the congregation, and he's reproving the congregation for not addressing it, he says, so that his spirit may be saved. The connotation there is that his spirit is lost. Paul is urging discipline so that this man can be saved. This man was undoubtedly still on the church roll of the congregation of Corinth. One of the things that oftentimes we or people confuse is the church roll and kingdom membership. They are not synonymous. It is perfectly possible for me to be on a church roll and not in the kingdom of God. Because man decides who's on the roll in the congregation. God decides who's in the kingdom. I believe we should be aligned with a local congregation. God wants us to be that. But simply being aligned with a local congregation does not necessarily mean that I or you are aligned with the kingdom. This appears to be the case. If 2 Corinthians chapter 2 applies to this, then this had a happy ending. At least to some extent. This man seems to maybe have been restored if you take that passage in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 2 to apply to that. The second time Paul uses that phrase is in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 20. Where he says, Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. He's urging them to be delivered unto them. They've hit the bottom. They, they, need to, they need to realize the seriousness of their situation. But in both cases, whether it's 1 Corinthians 5 or 1 Timothy 1, it is to be done number one, for the good of the church, and number two, for the good of the individuals, and not necessarily in any particular order, because both are necessary. 
when discipline occurs, how are we to interact with that one? Well, Paul gives us some interesting insights into that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9, 10, and 11. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous and extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. He said, I'm not saying you can't have any contact with sexually immoral people because you're living in the world and you can't have no contact with them. But listen to verse 12. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or an executioner, not even to eat with such a person. Notice the difference. There's one standard for interacting with those who have never accepted the Lord, and there is another standard for interacting with those who have accepted the Lord and rejected and turned their back on Him and the church. Sadly, the New Testament world is not all that different from the world we have today. As we read the New Testament, we're looking into a very world in which we live. Paul, writing in 1 Thessalonians 4, wrote about the purity of the church. Finally then, verse 1, Brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know that what commandments we give unto you through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul had told them that earlier in the Thessalonian writings, he said, I urge you to do this. Now he's saying, I command you to do this. Apparently, they didn't take his urgings. They didn't take his example. And now Paul has to use harsher language as he goes into 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name. He went from urging and exhorting in 1 Thessalonians to now I command you in 2 Thessalonians. That you keep away from any brother who walks in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you have received from us. He approached it with milder language in his first letter to them. He approached it with firmer language, if you will, in his second epistle to them. And he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves, you keep away from. Christian discipline is not primarily that of cutting off a person or denouncing them, but it is a withdrawing from them. We cease to have the same fellowship that we used to be able to have with them. We don't regard them or not to regard them any longer as a Christian brother. Paul says, separate yourselves from them. Do not seek. We we don't seek to injure their name or standing as an individual. Hold them up to ridicule. We do not follow with denunciation or a spirit of revenge, but we are to cease to recognize our fellowship them 
the brother or sister in the Lord when he shows that he's no longer or they are no longer worthy of it. From every brother that walketh disorderly. And that denotes conduct that is contrary to the doctrine of Christ and therefore detrimental to the church. And then Paul says, not after the tradition which you received of us. In other words, this is not a, a tradition of men. This is a tradition that Paul had received from the Lord that he had passed along to the Thessalonians. And it's because of that that he speaks so stringently about it. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 14 have nothing to do with them. One purpose here, as always, is redemption. Bringing back the person who has fallen. The purpose of discipline must always be redemption, not punishment. The motive must never be get even or get rid of some, someone. We, the church should never be trying to get rid of someone, but getting rid of something. Sin. purpose here is redemptive with respect to the person committing the sin. Question. Do we love them enough to do that? Rick spoke this morning about love. Do we love them enough to do that? Some wrongly think that love is opposed to discipline. But the Bible is clear that we cannot love our brothers and sisters in Christ if we do not deal with their sins or if they do not deal with ours in the way that God prescribes. Because God loves us, he disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness. And because sin destroys people and relationships, to be indifferent towards someone who is sinning is really to hate that person. Do we love enough to be a pure church? But another purpose certainly is to avoid giving the appearance of or actually approving of sinful conduct. To avoid bringing reproach upon the church or the gospel. Do we love the church and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ enough to do that? Do we have the courage to be a pure church? Often the answer is, I just can't bring myself to do that. And that's an answer that everybody has the right to give. But it seems to me that in that case, if we take that approach, we will have to accept the consequences of not following God's teachings. And some have sadly chosen not to. Now in verse 15 of 2 Thessalonians 3, and I know some of your minds are already ahead of me, it says, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn or admonish him as a brother. And that is as true as any of the other verses that I've read. To admonish him of a brother, do not shun him with contemptuous silence, but tell him why he is avoided or why his 
our fellowship with them is must be restricted. And there are passages for that. In Luke chapter 19, verse 17, it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of it. Or in other words, if you fall, lest you fall into his sin. A similar thought to what we have in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. In Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary, they wrote this. Instead of holding latent feelings of malice or meditating revenge against a person who has committed an insult or injury, God's people ought to, but pardon me, God's people were taught to remonstrate, which means to forcefully or reproachfully protest with the offender and endeavor by calm and kindly reason to bring him to a sense of his fault. Restoration. Restoration. So where does that leave us? To warn or admonish does require some communication and conduct. Not a shunning. I don't know how you warn or admonish someone and have no interaction with them. But it is a far cry, it would appear, from going on in a relationship as if nothing had happened. The relationship must change for the good of the erring one and for the purity of the church. And if we fail to confront, we give the erring one a false sense of security. It must not be that bad. Nothing's happening. Nobody's saying anything. Things are just going on like they always have. But maybe even Equally, if not even more troubling, we also, when we do this, give this concept to other eyes that are watching. Elders and congregations lose their credibility to deal with future sins. How do you ignore sin here and then try to enforce it there? We tell by our disregard for action, sometimes we tell our young people that sinful conduct is not that bad despite what we say. It either is or it isn't. And we doom sometimes the future of a congregation. I've sadly, and some of you also have sadly seen congregations die. Or you may be thinking of some that seem to be dying. I don't think this is the only reason, but there seems to be a common thread that oftentimes sin, sound doctrine, are not handled as God would have us to handle them. Why is it so hard for us? And it is, and it's hard for me. Well, we don't want to hurt anybody. But by not addressing sin, we hurt so many more people worse, and them. We don't want to drive anybody away. But they have chosen conduct that is probably already, or may have already, caused God to remove them from the kingdom. Removing them from the church role does not necessarily affect their salvation, because we could make a mistake. 
And God is the ultimate judge. Sometimes it's a lack of confidence and courage on our part. You think it was easy for Nathan to go in and talk to David? You think it was easy for Paul to confront Peter? Right is often hard. Sometimes we think, well, maybe time will fix it. Or if we wait long enough, somebody else will handle it. We don't want to be seen as a busybody. Well, we don't want to be seen as a busybody. But time usually doesn't fix things that are broken. Sometimes we comfort ourselves with, well, they know. There's nothing else I can tell them. I'm sure they won't listen to me. Maybe they won't, but they can know that you care about them. And that you're praying for them. God cares for us and our congregations when we are loving and courageous enough to exercise biblical discipline. A pure church is a powerful church. It's an attractive church to those who are truly seeking the Lord. Our ultimate concern always has to be souls above unity, above feelings, above being liked, and above our families. Rick made a statement, which I agree with in his talk this morning, that sometimes love allows us to believe they will come back. And that's our prayer. But sometimes we convince ourselves that what they're doing is simply okay when it's not. And if the proof is in the pudding, I'm afraid that sometimes we fall a little short in this area. I mentioned that in 2 Corinthians 2, it appears that maybe this one that was disciplined in 1 Corinthians 5 came back. It's a little vague, but I think you can make that case. But we each have a responsibility for the purity of the church. If you are a leader of a congregation, lead. If you're a member in a congregation, support your leaders in this effort when it's necessary because it is the church that does this. And if discipline falls on a loved one, a family member, love them enough to put the purity of their souls, the salvation of their souls, and the purity of God's body first. You know, in this world, in our society, we have emergency response teams. When people are injured or in danger, they waste no time in getting there. Finding out what's wrong and addressing the hurt and the danger. We call 911 when physical tragedy hits. Why not 911 when spiritual tragedy hits? Are souls less important than our lowly bodies? Of course not. With the stresses around life, around all of us, being tossed to and fro can leave us sinking very quickly. There's a lot of examples I could use and time doesn't allow, but I, my mind went back to 1 Samuel chapter 25 when Abigail, 
saw a stressful situation and David was about to do something that he shouldn't be, she, post-haste, if you will, set about in her humble way to resolve the situation. If she had delayed, what would have been the future of David? How would history have been rewritten? When there is sin in the camp, as in the days of Achan, it had to be addressed. And hoping it will go away will not necessarily address it. For those of us that are a little older, Our young people don't understand when or why sin is not addressed in the camp. I remember sitting down with a young man, late teens, early 20s, some time ago, and he felt there was sin in the congregation that he was a part of, and I had to agree with him. And he simply asked me, why is it not being addressed? I couldn't answer that question. I had an opinion, but I I agreed with him. When we don't address it as God asks us to, I think our young people see hypocrisy between our words and our actions. And I can't help them because I don't understand it either. We need to do it with love. We need to do it always with the desire of restoration. We need to do it no matter how close we are to them, maybe even more so because of our closeness to them. And if it's us that have fallen, we need to accept their help with love and thankfulness and not with defensiveness. It's awful easy to go through a subject like this and say we're the ones helping somebody else when probably half the time we're the ones needing help. That's part of what the body is about, isn't it? May God help us maintain purity in the church. Because only then can we be Christ's church. Because the church is to be pure. Not perfect, but pure. And when imperfections raise their head, Loving Christians put the souls of each other ahead of the fields of each other. If I need to be reproved and rebuked, you get the biggest two-by-four you can get and come to Greenwood, Missouri. Because I would rather you hit me with it than let my soul be lost. And I believe we all agree with that. But it's still hard, isn't it? It is hard. I'm not wagging my finger because you're lacking. I'm wagging my finger because we're sometimes lacking. The elders, as Wade pointed out, have a tremendous responsibility here. But they don't have the sole responsibility. If we're going to love one another, as Rick pointed out in his lesson, this is part of it. 
If we're going to benefit from our assembling together as John spoke to us about, this can be part of it. There was a Spatial Olympics, Olympics in Seattle, Washington some years ago. You're familiar with the Spatial Olympics. It's wonderful young people that are a little bit less capable in some areas than maybe you are. And they were going to do the 100-yard dash. And they just thought this was the Olympics. We have a, a Down syndrome girl in our congregation, and sometimes she would participate in it. She would come in with a medal. I think they all got medals. And she was more proud of that than the Purple Heart. There was a 100-yard dash in this Spatial Olympics, and the gun went off, and about 10 of them headed down the, the runway. It was on a cinder track, if you've ever run on a cinder track. It's not the kind of track you want to fall on because it plumb hurts. That's a theological term, plumb hurts. About halfway down the 100-yard dash, one of the little boys fell. Within 10 yards, the other nine participants stopped, came back, dusted him off, locked arms, and all ten of them finished the race in a ten-way tie. What a metaphor for the family of God. I need to try to finish ahead of you. You don't need to finish ahead of me. Let's finish together. And let's not lose anybody on the way. If we can help anybody in any way this afternoon, we're going to have a closing song. Extend the gospel invitation. If that applies to you or you have something that needs to be brought to the group, we set this time aside as we stand and as we sing.